once again. Welcome to Lynchburg City Church. My name is Joe, I'm one of the pastors. Pastor Dane, who's usually here tonight, um, thought he'd be back in time. He was coming from out of town. He wasn't able to make it, but that's why he's not sitting right there. So, some of you have been promised for several weeks about 3 John, and we will begin 3 John tonight. Um, it is definitely, I think, one of the distinctives of Lynchburg City Church is the fact that we do expository, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, uh, a preaching. That's how we approach the text. My goal tonight is not that you remember some memorable story from my personal life. My goal is that you remember this story. This story is what matters. Funny phrase or something witty I say, it doesn't matter. This matters a whole lot more. Imagine if I handed you a letter. Think about that for a second. I hand you a letter. Perhaps the first question that you would have is, who, who wrote this? And, and if you didn't know who the person was that wrote the letter that you had, then perhaps you'd ask me, well, Joe, can you tell me who this person is? You want to know who wrote the letter. If I'm giving you a letter, if someone's giving you a letter, you want to know who wrote it. In order to fully understand what this is all about. You have a letter before you tonight. And I think asking those questions as we begin our journey through the book of 3 John is equally important. Who is the man who wrote the letter that we're about to study? His name is John. The same man that wrote 1 John, the same man that wrote 2 John, is the same man that wrote 3 John, the same man that wrote the gospel according to John, the same man that wrote the book known as Revelation. And that's the guy. John oftentimes is known and associated with a man named James. You usually hear it, James and John, James and John, James and John. They were brothers. This John had a brother. His name was James. People say, why is it always James and John? Why is it never John and James? Well, a lot of people believe the reason is because James was the more prominent of the brothers. He was, he was the older brother, so his name always came first in the list whenever it was mentioned. But they had a dad. Their dad's name was Zebedee. And according to Mark chapter 120, had a pretty prosperous fishing business within the family. Mark 1.20 says they even had hired servants as a part of this family fishing business. But John, originally, was a disciple of John the Baptist. You're saying they're two different guys? Yeah, they're two different guys. So the man writing this story, when he was very young, was a follower and disciple of John the Baptist. In fact, if you read John's Gospel, chapter 1, 35 to 40, you realize that it wasn't until John the Baptist pointed out Jesus as the Messiah that at which point John left John the Baptist to be a follower and disciple of Jesus the Christ. John's also known as the Apostle of Love or the Disciple whom Jesus loved. That was a, a phrase he'd used in writing John's Gospel uh, to refer to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's also, as I said, known as the Apostle of Love. And yet, despite having the reputation as the disciple of love or the Apostle of Love, 
Jesus gave him and his brother James in Mark chapter 3, 17, the name Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Well, John lived up to this nickname on more than just one occasion. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, there's Jesus. They're going through this village, a Samaritan village, and as they attempt to travel through, the Samaritan village will not receive them. Will not receive them. John and his brother James about flip out. They are furious that these Samaritan scum will not receive Jesus. So John comes to Jesus. He says, listen, him and James are there. Listen, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven right now and just kill everybody? Because do that if you want us to do that. Like right right now, we'll, we'll do that, Jesus. We'll just call down from fire from heaven, kill them all, boom, just like that, we'll be done. The sons of thunder. I think what we're going to see about John is this is a man who at times can be a little firecracker. He, he gets very excited and very passionate about things that are true, things that are right. The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, tells a story. On one such instance, there were was a band of robbers, a gang. And apparently, its leader, at one time, had professed faith in Christ. Well, it's been more than just a hot minute since that time. John finds out about this, and as Clement of Alexandria says, John enters the camp of the band of robbers. I just imagine this this old dude walking in with no regard to his own personal safety, confronts the captain of of the band of robbers, and says, what you're doing is wrong. There was a time that you professed faith in our great God King, the man Jesus Christ, and look at your life now. Look at the things you've been doing. You need to repent right now. You need to repent right now. That's John. That's John. See this, this old guy come in, he's like, hey, knock it off right now, repent. A man passionate, zealous for the truth. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, tells a story from John's later life while he was in the ancient city of Ephesus where he spent the vast majority of the end of his life in Ephesus. Polycarp tells a story about how John went to the bathhouse in Ephesus. And upon entering, he realized, once he would entered the bathhouse, that the heretic, Serenthus, was in the bathhouse. Now, you might not be familiar with Serenthus, but Serenthus was basically teaching distorted things about who Jesus is. He said that Jesus was not fully God nor fully man. He said that Jesus was only fully God at certain parts of his ministry and then fully man at other parts. So he was fully man up until the time that John the Baptist baptized him, at which point he was fully God, the Spirit came down, he was fully God for a time, and then prior to his crucifixion, the divine part of him left and he was just fully man. That's, that's Serenthus. That's what Serenthus taught about Jesus. So Polycarp tells us, tells a story. John goes into the bathhouse at Ephesus, finds out that Serenthus is in the bathhouse, grabs his stuff, runs out of the bathhouse, screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs, 
And I quote, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. John was passionate about what was true. Think about it. There's, there's John going into the bathhouse, you know, got his gym bag. There's Serenthus, and he's like, nope. I'm not, I don't even, I don't even want to be around this, this man, this enemy of the truth, lest God strike him dead and the entire bathhouse fall down. Say, some of us would be like, John's awful judgy. No, John was passionate about the truth, about what was right. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who you may remember was a disciple of John, tells us and gives us a little bit more insight about the man John, that John lived until the time of Emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 A.D., until he was banished to the island of Patmos, where he received the visions that he described in the book of Revelation. But John's life prior to being disposed to Patmos was spent in Ephesus, so what Arrhenius tells us, and that this book, 3 John, was most likely written from the ancient city around 90 to 95 A.D. Knowing the things that we've just discussed, this historical excursus, it should come as no surprise that one of the major themes throughout this book is the truth. For a man who's so passionate about standing up for the truth. Let's begin to unpack this. Verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The elder, the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. I should mention, you're going to see the word truth pop up, I think, four times in your English Bibles in the first four verses alone. So the elder, the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, typically when we write a letter today, we write, dear so-and-so, dear mom, dear dad, dear person I like, you know, check yes, no, or maybe if you like me too, or... And then we close the letter by writing love and drawing hearts, or very respectfully, sincerely, so-and-so. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, this was a little bit different how correspondence would be written down. So it was very customary at this time for the writer to name himself in the opening letter. And that's what we see. The elder is the man writing the letter. The elder is John. An elder does not just designate John's age. It's important to note that of all of Jesus' disciples... According to church history, every one of them lived to die a martyr's death, with the exception of John, who died in old age. Christ was crucified sometime around 33 A.D. That means when John is writing this around 90 to 95 A.D., he would have been very old. Very old. But the term elder does not simply designate the fact that he's old. The term elder is often used synonymously with the word bishop, overseer, pastor, and elder. Those words are used synonymously within the New Testament. What is significant about this text is that elder refers to John's position of spiritual oversight. It refers to John's position of spiritual authority. And you think about it, by this time, John's the only surviving disciple, original 12 disciples of Christ. He's the only one left. They're all dead. 
He would perhaps have been the most revered and respected figure within the global church at this time. Verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now we introduce our second character. It's a guy named Gaius. There are different Gaiuses within the Bible. However, it's impossible to say with any certainty whatsoever which Gaius that we may have found his name mentioned in other books, who it is that this man is. And the reason is because in the Roman world, Gaius was perhaps one of the most popular names. But what we do know about this man Gaius is that John seems to personally know him. He seems to personally know Gaius, and evidently Gaius was a member, perhaps even a leader or pastor within a local church, if so, probably somewhere in Asia Minor, which would have been modern-day Turkey. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. The love that the elder is speaking of here is a unique love. A special love the believers have for those who are in Christ. In fact, the phrase, the elder, the beloved guy is whom I love in truth, that phrase in truth, very significant. What the elder is saying is that Gaius, like himself, is in the truth. That is, Gaius, like himself, is continuing in the faith. That Gaius, like himself, is continuing to believe truth concerning Jesus Christ. And that's pretty significant. Why? Well, you already know that there are men like Serenthus running around distorting things about Jesus. And yet today, today this almost sometimes comes across as a philosophical question, right? What is truth? How do you determine truth? We need to be able to determine truth because Gaius is in the truth. And as we're going to see, Gaius later will be commended for being in the truth. So, so how do we determine what's true? Many people will tell you truth is subjective. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Something might be true for you that is not true for you. And truth also has the ability to evolve and change. So it could be true for me in this moment, but later moments it might not be true. So how do we determine what is true? The elder, the elder is writing this to Gaius, who, like him, is in the truth. He is faithful and true and believing true things concerning Jesus Christ. So how do we determine what's true? See, for many of us, huge problem. See, for many of us, as I'm sure many of you here, you'd probably say that you're a Christian. You probably say, hey, "I'm a Christian," but many of you probably would struggle a whole lot to tell me something or respond to me in some other way than, okay, tell me what's true. You might be able to come up with John 3.16, maybe, and that Jesus loves me because you know you're supposed to say that. But other than that, how do we do, how do, we do that? What, what's true? Gaius is in the truth. I think like Gaius, we should be in the truth. I think many of us are in the truth, and yet we don't even know what truth is. We have just floated along in this cultural Christianity, which is more concerned that you have a good time and you're laughing during corporate gatherings than you actually learn the Bible. So when we meet people, we don't, we don't know what to tell them. We have no response whatsoever for just basic, fundamental things. Look, 
One, I had one professor say, you know, I think it's interesting. How difficult would it be for each one of us to know at least one Bible verse, reference included, for as many years that we are alive? Don't think it's too difficult. Many of us were 18, 19, 20, however. But think about that. One, one Bible verse for each year that we're alive. And yet for many of us, we're falling way short of that. We don't even know basic things like Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Ephesians 2.8-9. Like fundamental gospel verses. Like gospel, like blood-saturated, blood-soaked verses. So that if we actually sat down with someone, and, and I said, listen, I'm going to die in five minutes. Five minutes from now, I will be dead. I want to know. Tell me what I need to know right now about Christianity, what this is all about. Go. If that was real life for many of you, if that was the conversation that took place, I'd be in hell. Perhaps. We say that, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm in the truth. I'm not denying that. But for some of us, we, we don't really even know. And for some of us, Young Joe Decreon, back after my freshman year in college, I remember telling someone, listen, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. He's my Savior. Die on the cross for my sins. That's it. That's all I need to know. I don't care about anything else. That presents a problem for a few reasons. It does. Serenthus, he's dead. But people like Serenthus still exist today. Some of them call themselves pastors. Some of them, you turn on the TV, and there's a Serenthus. In a church, teaching and preaching. Or sometimes you have personal conversations, like the one I did this summer. While I was at Fort Knox. I am an army chaplain in the reserves. So my job this summer was to help train up-and-coming army chaplains. They call them chaplain candidates. They're not full chaplains yet. They're a candidacy. They're in the candidate program to potentially be a chaplain. Junior officers, second and first lieutenants. They had the captains training them. And so I'd meet the chaplain candidates. Um, I had only two for the whole summer. That's, and then there were others. And uh, I always like to talk to the chaplain candidates, find out their background, what they believed. I remember this one conversation with this one female chaplain candidate. She said she was United Church of Christ. And of course, like me, I like to talk to everybody. United Church of Christ, the Mormons, whoever, um, Islamic chaplains. I just, I enjoy learning things, especially people that are different flavor than me. So I'm talking to this female chaplain candidate. And I said, United Church of Christ, I'm not very familiar with that. Is that like anything like Church of Christ? Because I know Church of Christ, what makes them distinct is that baptism plays a huge role in the salvation process. Like they're linked close. She's like, no, no, no. I said, well, then can you elaborate? What makes it distinct? And then she said, well, probably the most distinctive thing about United Church of Christ, United Church of Christ, is that we are very pro-LGBT issues. So lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgender, we are fully in support of, of anyone, and that's their lifestyle. And this is someone who shortly will wear a cross on their uniform just like me, signifying that I'm a chaplain once she finishes um, the rest of her prerequisites. 
It's great if you're a Christian and you're in the truth. It becomes problematic when you don't even know what truth is. And you can't even give an explanation because for many of you, like the most truth you get is when you come corporately on a Sunday, okay, to a service. As you know, it, that's the most truth you get because you neglect your spiritual lives terribly. Like, okay, I came here Sunday, I checked the box. Not a part of a small group, not getting to know the people of God. My prayer time, that doesn't exist. My Bible reading time, that doesn't exist. It's no wonder that we live in this biblical, illiterate version of Christianity and we just float along. So we encounter real-life conversations. Those are real-life conversations. I know you got a lot of liberty people in here. Okay, The conversations you have around here, I'm not saying they're not real-life, but they're diluted. Because here sometimes we think we're in the majority. You are not, Christians. You're not in the majority whatsoever. You're in the minority this is Babylon. You are exiles. You are not in the majority. And sometimes, sometimes this environment makes us very apathetic about our faith, about truth. And so we're in a situation like that and we're like, um, I don't think you're supposed to believe that. And she says, how come? And you say, I don't know. I just think it's in the Bible somewhere. Some of you guys know me. You know that I don't really have a whole lot of opinions. <laughs> so I gently, gently, I push back a little bit. This is, after all, someone who is professing faith in Christ. So I said, well, clearly we, we're not on the same page whatsoever. But how would you respond to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9? How would you respond to Romans chapter 1, 24 to 28? I just, boom. He's like, oh, you're a pastor. No, I, I studied those passages, so I know that those passages seemingly condemn LGBT issues. I said, how would you respond? Very, very gently, very carefully. How would you respond? Because those passages seem like they condemn the very things that you say you're supporting. How would you respond to a 1 Corinthians 6, 9, to a Romans 1, 24 to 28? And she said, well, here's the thing. I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. So here's the thing. You have to understand the Bible in its whole context. Okay, yeah, like I haven't been to seminary, so tell me more. Um, as if that's a super profound thought that any one of you who've taken biblical worldview probably knows. So you've got to understand the Bible in its whole context. One is that God is love, she said. And I'm thinking, okay, I can find at least a Bible verse that says God is love. I know that much. She said, second of all, you have to understand the Bible is a sexist, racist book. I had my best, my best poker face going on, okay? <laughs> I did. I mean, I was like, I was like, okay. Like inside, I'm like, I'm all torn up inside. I, I, like, I am, those conversations with people that, that, Say, I'm a Christian that are flying under the same banner as you. It's tough. It's tough. I remember calling my mom up and being like, Mom, spiritually, I just feel like <sighs> dark right now after this conversation. So I asked her. I said, it's interesting. I said, so how do you determine what parts of the Bible that you want to keep that you like and what parts of the Bible that don't really fit with what you believe? And she said, well, that's really up to the individual. The individual determines the parts. And I said, so how do you do it? And she said, well, that's a really personal question I don't want to get into right now. 
Imagine if you come up to your professor and say, I have a question about this text, and he says, oh, that's too personal. I can't really talk to you about that. Or going and talking to the subject matter expert, like going and talking to your doctor, say, hey, can you tell me about this medication? No, that's, that's too personal. Like, you've got to ask somebody else. I'm the subject matter expert, but no, you can't talk. Well, is there such thing as, because I knew at that point exactly where her argument was coming from. She didn't believe in absolute truth. As Christians, this is the truth that we stand on all day long, every day. And I said, so, do you believe in absolute truth? You've been in biblical worldview. You know, you know, you know how this works. And she said, no, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And of course, I responded, is that, is that an absolute statement? <laughs> At which point, I'm pretty sure I ticked her off, and she said, Ha ha, no. And the conversation ended. It's great if we're in the truth. It's great if we're Christians. It becomes less great when we actually know what truth is. I don't even know what truth is. I can't even give a gospel presentation to someone like a, a blood-bought, blood-saturated, like... He lived the perfect life for our sins that separated us from him, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, three days later, rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, proving that he was who he said to be. That salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Okay, now, it's just practice. How does it roll off so quick? Just practice. One of the guys from the church who texted me is like, hey, I really want to know how to present the gospel and share it better. Can we just meet up and practice? I'm like, sure. When we were meeting up, we just practice. All right, again, go. No? You just go again. Just practice. Just practice. I was practicing back when I was a senior at Liberty. Just practicing. How do you memorize scripture? I just practice. Just practice. I just commit that. I'm committed to the truth like Gaius was. More about Gaius, verse 2. Beloved, he says. Now, he's already used the phrase beloved. Beloved, and this phrase beloved can, can it break down. It can also translate dear friend. It's a very affectionate reference he has for Gaius. He seems to personally know Gaius. His beloved. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. We see the phrase that I pray all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. And perhaps you say, well, was he not in good health? You have to understand, once again, this is a very common standard Greco-Roman greeting in the first century. It's a very standard greeting in ancient letters saying, I pray that all may go well with your health. I don't think we should imply that perhaps Gaius was in terrible health. But what we do see is that the elder seems very concerned about him. He seems concerned, and he's praying, Gaius, Gaius, I just pray that you will be in good health when you're reading this letter, that you won't have any illness, that you'll be free of any sickness or anything that perhaps may hinder you or restrict you. Like, Gaius, I want you to be as unrestricted as possible for the service of the great God-King Jesus Christ and his people, the church. This is a prayer, a very standard greeting here. And then he concludes verse 2, and he says, As it goes well with your soul, Gaius. As it goes well with your soul. The elder seems to know that spiritually, Gaius is doing quite well. He's doing very well. Some of you, spiritually, you're not doing so well. Like spiritually, some of you, this is the first time you've even gone to a corporate gathering in quite a while. 
Like spiritually, like some of you have very much neglected God's word this last week or two weeks. And spiritually, you guys are just sucking. You're in a very dry, nasty place. But for Gaius, Gaius is doing quite well spiritually. As it goes well with your soul, you say, how do you know it's going so well? Like, how are you saying it? How do you know that Gaius spiritually is doing so well? Well, verse 3 will reveal the answer to that, to how he knows at the end of verse 2 that it's going so well spiritually for him. Verse 3, it says, For I, the elder says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So the answer is, the reason the elder knows the guy is spiritually just doing awesome is because evidently these brothers in Christ had traveled to where Gaius lives, perhaps stayed with Gaius for a few days or a few weeks, stayed at his church, interacted with Gaius, saw Gaius on a daily occasion, and then went back and gave a report to the elder in Ephesus and said, Gaius, Gaius is rocking it like a hurricane. Like, like spiritually, Gaius is just, he's doing awesome, John. He's doing so great. And John says, I rejoice. Like, I, I was pumped. I mean, I was there with my thunder sticks and my cowbells. Like, I was rejoicing. I was rejoicing when the brothers came and told me how well spiritually you're doing. And they came and they testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Walking here at the end of verse 3, it's a common metaphor in the New Testament that refers to daily conduct. It's walking daily, continually. It's evident. It's daily conduct. Everybody sees it. The brothers saw it. They spent enough time that they felt confident enough to tell John, okay, this guy is a rock star. He's doing awesome. Then verse 4. I have no greater joy... I have no greater joy, like nothing pumps me up more than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The phrase, my children, perhaps, is an intentional reference within the original language. MacArthur says, perhaps it was phrased, my children, to show and reveal that Gaius had potentially been converted under John's ministry. For whatever reason... John seems to know Gaius personally here. That may or may not be the case, but he says, I've got no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I mean, that's the goal. That's how I feel. Sometimes I talk to Diana, and I'm like, and we're talking about you know, some of the people here at Lynchburg City, and I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of him. They're, they're, they're doing great. They're doing awesome. See, the goal is not just truth or even that you understand it, though that's obviously important, but that the goal is that our lives are transformed by the truth. I'll tell you what, one of the things, I pray this every day before I even read my Bible, and I'm reading through John's Gospel, actually. So I'm reading through 3 John, I'm reading through John's Gospel. I pray, God, I want to be changed. Like, as I read your word today, I don't just want it to be words on a page, just See it, read it, don't even remember it, out, like, out in one ear, out the other. Like, I want to be changed, God, by your word. Change me by your word. 
think that's the goal here. It's part of this rejoicing that the elder has for Gaius. So nothing brings me greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You know what's interesting, though? Gaius here, he's not commended because he was nice and hospitable at this point to the brothers. He's not commended for his love. He's commended for his commitment to the truth. Did you not see what it said in verse 4? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He's not commended for his love. He's commended for his commitment to the truth. The elder commends Gaius, not simply because he knows the truth, which he does, but because he lives the truth. Oh, that we might be like Gaius. That we might be like Gaius. Here's where it gets a little sticky, a little tricky. I think some of you guys... I think some of you guys are in the camp where you are like Gaius. I mean, you're, you're just, you're trying so hard. And right now, spiritually, it is going very well with your soul. But there's some others of you in here, that's just not the case whatsoever. Like, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian, but I'm saying like, you're in the truth, but man, you're like, you don't even know what truth is. Like, I'm a Christian. I'm like Gaius, but I don't really know what it is that I even believe. Like, I can't tell someone more than John 3.16. And spiritually, it's just not very well right now for you. And there's others of you that you're here and you think you're in the camp. You think, yeah, I am, I'm with Gaius. I'm in the truth. And yet nothing's ever changed in your life. You say you're in the truth, and I'd say, well, has anything ever changed? No, it's pretty much the way it's always been every year of my life. Let me tell you this. According to Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me tell you this. For those of you who this might be the category you're in, you say you're in the truth, but nothing in your life has changed. There's no evidence that you're walking in the truth like Gaius. Let me tell you this. It's possible that the reason is, is because you're not a Christian. You think you're in the truth, but you're not. You're not walking in the truth. And the reason I say that is because it's impossible for you to meet Jesus in a saving way and nothing change. It's impossible. That can't happen. You can't meet Jesus in a saving way and then nothing in your life ever change. And yet you think because you have some head knowledge, say, I'm in the truth. Therefore, I'm a Christian. You won't find those type of statements in the scriptures. In fact, you'll find quite the opposite, such as even the demons believe in God. Even they have some type of head knowledge. And then we wonder why we see the Matthew 7 and Luke 6 passages which say, on that day many will come and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I don't know who you are. Away from me. No, I'm in the truth, God. No. I'm not saying that's every person here. Wouldn't be surprised if it was some. Where you're in, like, you think you're in the truth and you're not. There's, there's no change that's ever occurred in your life. And, and not to discourage you. I understand spiritual change happens at different paces. And sometimes we are in the truth, but spiritually we're at a low point. That's really for that, the second category of you. 
Like some of you, you're very much in the truth, even though like you really don't know what the truth is that you believe. And you're spiritually very much unlike Gaius, where it's well with his soul, it's not well with your soul. Because you're not where you should be in the truth. Because maybe for you, you it's like, well, yeah, the only spiritual food I get is when I come to a corporate gathering on Sunday. I don't spend time faithfully with the Lord during the day, during the week. I don't meet with the people of God. I'm not a part of a small group. I'm not even a part of a local church. I know I should be more like guys, but I'm not. I say it's because I don't have enough time, but I had time to finish that Netflix show. I had time to hang out with that guy or that girl. And I'm not here to preach last week's sermon over again, but I'll tell you this is my biggest concern, especially when I see people get into dating relationships. Not always, but a majority of the time when I've seen people come in and then leave and then they no longer show up. And spiritually, their priorities go from like hero to zero. Not always, but a vast majority of the time it's because of a boy or a girl. And I say that, not to say I like scold you, but to be mindful of those weaknesses. Like Satan will use anything, good or bad, to keep you from the best thing. To keep you from the things and the freedom from the people of God, from God himself. He'll use whatever he can. But I know some of you might be in that category. You say you're in the truth, but you give very little evidence. You give some, but it's just little. Then there's the other category. You say you're in the truth, you give no evidence. And I think part of the problem for this is just how we approach modern evangelism. Okay? Notice for a second, I was thinking about this. The elder seems to know that Gaius is in the truth. The thing is, is how does he know he's in the truth? Think about this. I'll answer it, but just I want you to think about it. How does the elder know that Gaius is in the truth. He knows he's in the truth, but how does he know that he's in the truth? I think modern evangelism plays into a huge part of this. The elder doesn't say, Gaius, I know you're in the truth because you made a decision for Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. Gaius, I know that you're in the truth because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. doesn't say that either. Gaius, I know you're in the truth because you prayed the prayer doesn't say that. Gaius, I know you're in the truth because you asked Jesus into your heart. Doesn't say that either. But that's how we talk all the time. All the time. And the dangers of it is potentially misleading millions of people to thinking that they're in the truth when biblically they have not responded to the gospel. There's no evidence, no change, that they're actually walking in the truth. Guys, what does he say? He says, or the elder says to guys, guys, I know you're in the truth, guys. I know you're in the truth. The brothers came. They hung out with you. They gave a report to me. They said it was evident. It was obvious. It was super clear that you're walking in the truth, that your daily conduct, your daily life gave a testimony to the fact that you truly are in the truth. But that's not it, how it is for us. And we take this especially even into our, our friendships, our dating relationships. Well, they say they're a Christian. What does that mean? They say they have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, yeah, so did Judas. So does Satan. They say they believe in God. Which God? People laugh when I ask them that. No, I'm like, seriously, which God? Because we live our lives not based off what God's Word says. We have a tendency as we float along, those of us who are we're in the truth just like barely 
to live our lives not based off God's word, but based off like a bunch of slogans and t-shirts from Lifeway Christian stores. Like that's where we get our, our feel. Oh, that was a cool little bumper sticker. All right, that was a cute little phrase on that t-shirt. The elder doesn't talk like that. Gaius, I know that you're in the truth because it's been evidenced in your life because you are walking. The brothers hung out with you and they saw you and they lived with you every day for quite a time and you were walking in the truth. It was evident. It was obvious. We don't talk like that today though. We say things like 200 people got saved last night. 200 people are in the truth and I'm thinking how do you know that? How do you know 200 people are in the truth? And we do that. It drives me nuts. In this papal-like Vatican way, boom. You made a profession, boom, you're in the truth. The elder doesn't talk like that. The elder knows he's in the truth because it's evident. It's obvious. There's, there's been a change in his life. George Whitfield, love Whitfield, preached during the Great Awakening. Probably share this quote probably every week. The rest of my life, I love it. Heard David Platt use it the other day. Whitfield would preach to thousands during the Great Awakening. People would say, Mr. Whitfield, how many people got saved at your, at, when you spoke, when you preached? And he would say, I don't know. Who talks like that, Mr. Whitfield? Okay, let me give you a modern evangelism 101 lesson. You always know. Okay, you know. Let me educate you, Mr. Whitfield. Elder, let me educate you. You guys just, how you talk is so weird. drives me nuts. Whitfield would say, I don't know how many people got saved after I preached, but we may in a couple months, we'll know. We'll see how many lives change. Early Puritans, same way. They never did altar calls. Early Puritans, how are you supposed to know who got saved? How are you supposed to know who's in the truth, early Puritans? It was easy. Their lives changed and they kept coming back to church. Well, we don't talk like that. And the risk is, is we pronounce people that they're in the truth when really they're not in the truth at all. And they haven't responded biblically to the gospel. Oh, that we might be like Gaius. Like Gaius. A man who's in the truth. Not just because he says he's in the truth. Not just because he believes that he's in the truth. Not just because he made a decision and said, I'm going to be in the truth. But because... His life has so been radically changed by the work of God. So that it's clear to any person, in the truth or not in the truth, that there's a difference in Gaius' life. That we might be like Gaius. We might even know what truth is. Challenge each and every single one of you. However old you are, that's my challenge. Start right now. He was like, I can't memorize 20 Bible verses. Tell you what, I didn't know how many Bible verses were possible. I remember Noah and me, he challenged me. He was like, how about we memorize 50 Bible verses? I said, all right, let's do it. He said, between Thanksgiving, it was Thanksgiving, and New Year's. And I said, all right, let's do it. Because I'm competitive like that. Got all 50 done. My point is, is that we need to know what we believe. We need to stop floating around in this Disneyland version of Christianity and realize we're in the minority, that we are in exile Babylon, and that we need to know what we believe. We need to be like Gaius. Oh, that we might be like Gaius. And quit making excuses for why we're not. 
If I only had more time. You think you're going to have more time once you graduate college? Once you have a job? When you have kids? You're not. If you're looking for excuses for why you can't be like Gaius, you'll always find them. There's plenty in the bottom of everyone's barrel. I want the band come. I'm going to pray. God, we love you. You are a good God. You are a great God. I thank you for the elder John. I thank you for Gaius. And I pray that you would help me and the many people in here to be like him. That we wouldn't just be in the truth, but they would be so clear to everyone around us that we are walking in the truth. And that we would know what truth is beyond just the John 3.16, Jesus loves you. So I know some people, we need to honestly probably be convicted. Because for some of us, it's not spiritually where we ought to be. Our soul, it's not well with our soul, but God, we desperately want it to be. So I pray with St. Augustine, Lord, command what you will, give what you command. Enable us to be like Gaius in the truth, walking in the truth. In your name we pray, amen.